This is Nadia Solomon, British Army officer and PhD student at Imperial College London. You are listening to the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. of Liverpool Academy's Developing Practice podcast. In this episode, myself, Alex Owen, academic developer and Matt Davis, organisational developer, sat down with Nadia Solomon, a former army officer and current PhD student at Imperial College London. We discussed Nadia's understanding of the differences between the army and HE in relation to development and leadership. We hope you enjoy. Brilliant. Nadia, it's really lovely um, to be speaking to you today. We've just heard you talking at the Research Staff Association Lunch and Learn, which was really interesting. Um, We're really thankful that we can have some time with you now um, to catch up and to hear a little bit in terms of your interests. But before we get started, it'd be really lovely just to hear a bit about your background. Um, So thank you for having me. Um, So I am a Liverpool University graduate. I graduated in 2007 with a degree in pharmacology and I then went on to join the army. I wanted some real challenge, some responsibility and a bit of adventure. Um, And after sort of 10 years of service, both in the regular army and in the reserve army, I have returned to academia. I did a master's at King's and I'm now a PhD student at Imperial College London. Brilliant. So um, the army is an interesting choice. Where did that come from? Your family, do they have that background or what Um, really sparked that interest in you? No, my, um, there isn't really a military background in my family. There is a little bit, but not in any in my immediate family. My mother was in the police, so maybe there is a little bit of like service. Mm -hmm. um, um, But I just was always interested. It's partly because I grew up in London and I used to watch the King's Troop, which is oh, all the horses, cool. go past yep. every day. So I had this very romantic notion of what it was to join the army. Um, but as I grew older, I always stayed close to wanting to learn about the different jobs and roles that existed in the army. So by the time I came to university, I was pretty pretty set on joining. Yeah. And then I joined the officer training corps here at Liverpool. Um, and that sort of sent me on my journey, really. Brilliant. And can you explore a little bit of that journey for us? So um, I just heard you speaking. You went to Sandhurst for your officer training. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so it's the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, which is the UK's leadership academy. All British Army officers go to be trained there. It is considered one of the best leadership academies in the world, if not the best. But I don't know how they measure them. But it sounds, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it sounds very that good. It yeah. is the best. Yeah. We've got um, the best academy in the in, in Liverpool Uni. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great like that. Brilliant. <laughs> um, and so Sandhurst is designed to teach British officers everything that they need to know to do their trade essentially. So you we have a variety of different types of training and lessons. So on the academic side we do war studies, um, defence and international affairs and um, communication and applied behavioural sciences. And that's to give us an understanding of the legalities of war, geopolitical situations, as well as sort of the psychology of sort of negotiation and persuasion. And then the other element is sort of the more the physical element of how to fight and mm-hmm. combat combat situations and how to train hard to fight easy and then I suppose the third part which is probably like the most important part of it is understanding our values and standards 
and, um, and our leadership code and how we have to embody those. So the motto at Sandhurst is serve to lead yeah. and then we have a group of, of, of values that we have to uphold. Wonderful. And then from there you were deployed abroad? Yes, so I commissioned into the Royal Engineers um, and the Royal Engineers have three main roles. Um, mobility, counter-mobility and survivability. So the Royal Engineers are everywhere um, and we provide lots of different functions. I was a bomb disposal officer and like an explosive hazard mitigation advisor, so essentially searched for bombs. Wow. Um, or improvised explosive devices as they were in Afghanistan. Um, and after a couple of years I deployed to Afghanistan um, and did my job out there, which Wonderful. is a real privilege. Yeah. yeah. And can you, uh, before we get on to the leadership aspect, can you tell us what, what was the key learning from being um, in that position? Um, in I'm guessing quite a scary situation sometimes. What, what did you learn about yourself maybe from those experiences? I think, I think you learn a lot and you learn a lot quite quickly. Mm. Um, it's everything, to go on operations, and particularly somewhere like Afghanistan, which... You know, we'd ha there was so much at that time going on. Yeah. It was really well covered in the press. Yeah. Um, we knew from friends that had already deployed ahead of us that it was going to be a really challenging time. Um, the Taliban at that time in the area that we were operating in, called Helmand Province, had really had good control, I suppose, over the battlefield, and they were using improvised explosive devices everywhere mm -hmm. to prevent our movement. But the problem with um, these devices is that they're indiscriminate. So they could be used against civilians and like innocent um, victims as well as other militaries. Um, and so it was our job to remove them. And so when you have that kind of level of responsibility, you do obviously take it very seriously, but you, you kind of, um, I suppose it's quite easy for you to to rationalise why I was there and what I was doing, and then I was doing a good job. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had the responsibility of my team, which is really, you know, it does sit heavy, it mm. did sit heavy at times, because I was in a team, my small little team was of six, but I had my whole troop of 30-something um, out at the same time. Um, and then I would deploy on the ground, if you like, in Afghanistan with about a larger team of 13, all of whom are responsible for their safety and then would talk to other teams on the ground as well. So I think I think the overwhelming feeling is responsibility mm -hmm. and, and I guess, just focusing on the job. Yeah, wonderful. And I guess you then brought those skills back to academia now. So you then yes. went to King's to study for your Masters and now you're at Imperial. Yes. Could you just tell us a little bit about <clears throat> what your PhD is about? Yes, so my um, PhD is doing systematic reviews and meta-analysis of animal studies. Um, a systematic review is a really useful way of collating all the evidence that currently exists. Um, and the reason why we need to do that is because, particularly in animal studies, we've got a large volume of research that's being published all the time. Often really small studies are conducted and with lots of conflicting ideas. And we need to try and standardise that to be able to really know for certain what the best direction is to move in into the future. Um, so I spend a lot of time, I suppose, appraising literature. Mm -hmm. Um, and looking at how rigorously um, the experiments have been designed and conducted and so that we can try and improve um, essentially how we could do animal studies so that we can get better results in the clinic. Wonderful. Wow. So I guess then from your time in the army, you've, that's one of those key skills you've, that you've had around attention to detail. You're definitely um, uh, using that in your academic career. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think there's actually quite a few more um, sort of technical skills that I've got from the army that yeah. do play in really yeah. well to my um, my PhD now. Um, so not just attention to detail, though that is really important, but um, also just that critical analysis, yeah. looking at something and really trying to understand all its component parts before kind of making a decision. Cool. Um, yeah. So I say you've you've uh, you found some similarities then between the army and uh, academic institutions. Do yeah. you want to talk a little bit about what you found? Or yeah, I think um, I think a lot of people, particularly in academia, would be really surprised to learn that a, a military institution mm. is similar. <laughs> um, because I think a lot of people have preconceived ideas about people in the military and what a military institution stands for. But actually, they're all they're both really old in general, and very traditional institutions that are trying to find their way in a modern world. Um, they try and bring large groups of people together, or they're operating in small units, but to overcome like really complex challenges, um, like like academia, the army is made up of lots of different types of people from different backgrounds, and it's just about how we can work effectively to overcome today's challenges. Yeah, great. And then um, from reading some of the work that you've done and then your talk, there is one stark difference that you've highlighted, um, how we train and equip colleagues to do their jobs. So how have you come to this realisation that there is that stark difference between the two? Um, it didn't take very long to when coming back to academia to realise this. Uh, I think we probably all experience just sort of microaggressions or examples of bad behaviour on a daily basis. And if you spend any time on Twitter, you will see that there are lots of very extreme cases of bullying and harassment and fraud that, that are constantly being reported. Um, but perhaps a little bit more closer to home, I was just by talking to people um, about their experiences and seeing supervisors that were struggling with limited funding, hearing about PhD students being kind of exploited to do certain work, not being appreciated or not even having their um, sort of personal situation being taken into consideration. And so when you put this all together, it doesn't take very long to realise that there's been a, a focus in academia that is very individualistic, very inward looking. It's all about our research output. Um, there has been a value placed upon quantity over quality. And I would really like to see a more team oriented outward focused way of working that's a little bit healthier for us all so that um, research us and research can thrive. And I think one of those really big things that we need to drive um, cultural change is to equip people better for the rigours of our lives um, and leadership is a really important component of that but it doesn't often get addressed. Okay so holding that experience that you've had in academia um, since you've been back up against your experience from the army, um, how is that so different to what you experienced um, from, the, from your experience in the army? Yeah I think I mean the army is like any other institution it's got its issues and they're working through them but one of the things that the army does really well is training mm -hmm. and particularly leadership training they prioritize it and it has to be done um, and it isn't just something for the officer corps actually it's delivered at every level so even private soldiers when they first go to you know, the foundation colleges and then into basic training, they are taught the same principles, exactly the same as officers are, of leadership and have are expected to uphold the same values and standards. So it's something that is, um, there is an understanding between everybody and it's something that is prioritised. And recognising that leadership is a, leadership skills that need to be developed over time, 
this gets revisited and retrained and evaluated and it evolves as you grow up as well. So at every career stage and every promotion, you will be expected to go back to some form of leadership training mm-hmm. um, and sort of rehone those skills and perhaps um, gain new skills or new ways to just be able to use your understanding of leadership and what good leadership is in the situation which you will then be in. Let me just unpack that model a little bit then. So is that a case then when you're being promoted and, and finding different roles that you are refreshing those skills and you're revisiting the same themes? Or is it a case that um, Sandhurst would, would then sort of build on? I think it's better to perhaps to say, yes, we refresh, but perhaps maybe it's more reflect. Right. And the fundamental principles are always the same. Yeah. And then you build upon that given the situation and the level of responsibility that you're going to have. So right. how best to employ these fundamental principles given the role that you're given doing the, yeah given the new Your enhanced new responsibilities yes. in that role yeah. right okay that's good that makes sense so i'm um, looking at some of the research that's been done in terms of higher education i think rowley's research concerning motivation and academic staff um, his work sought to identify some of the issues that impact on motivation for staff in higher education and one of the key um areas that he's looked at is to do with this idea of rewards being given to takers rather than givers and I know that was one of the stark differences that that you were trying to highlight through the army where I guess it is all about giving isn't it do you want to unpack that a little bit for us in terms of this notion that we we have potentially in higher education where the only way to get ahead the only way to uh, see promotion is by making it about you becoming individualistic Um, And that's a huge generalisation, I get that. But there is that kind of concept of making it all about you, which I guess is a stark difference to your experience from the army. Yeah, and I think as a PhD student, you very quickly, and this is what I really struggled with, because I'd come from such a team-oriented place, even though, you know, as as a junior officer... I perhaps at times felt very isolated. I was still in a much larger team and there were still people to ask for help and to support me and and that worked regardless of rank and position. Whereas academia, you do feel really early on very isolated and it can be a very lonely place. And suddenly it feels like it is all on you. Mm. And the things that we... um, How we define success in academia is based on your research outputs. And you'll get asked what position you were in the paper and you know what your h index is mm-hmm. and then so then we do not value anything that isn't orientated towards that and what i'm sort of advocating for is a change and to realign our values to say that those things aren't just important and in my talk i said that you know we still have academic celebrities but actually around them will be a really large team yeah. Yeah. and we need to recognize that to become a very successful academic you have to have a very strong team behind you. But some of those people in that team will be brilliant on their own accord and others will have really good, you know, lots to offer, but perhaps don't want to be a leader. And that's okay. We just need to we need to take a step back, understand what our values are, and start to reward the things that are really important, which isn't just quantity of research output. And do you think then that would have that knock-on effect in terms of staff motivation? Absolutely. I think it's really difficult 
I think lots of people want to do good things mm. and lots of people would enjoy being on committees and you know, just like the RSA, like people are giving up their time to, to, to do sort of community service, if you like. But if it counts for nothing, when we've only got so much, such a finite amount of time and our research output is all that we're being valued against, then you can see why people don't do it. Mm. And it is a real um, a challenge, really, for those who feel that they've got something to offer that's perhaps slightly different. Yeah. In your talk, you mentioned um, about leading by example, and, and that's very applicable for the army. I can I can completely get that around the people who you know, regardless of where they are in that sort of hierarchy, they need to be able to to show those leadership um, skills mm. on demand. What do, what does that mean for HE, do you think? Yeah, okay, well, I think there's a lot of things. First, I suppose if we start in, a, in sort of the microculture of a, of a lab, you know, if you're the head of the lab, you need to set exactly what the standards are of your lab and what you expect of your lab members and how you expect your lab members to behave. And you must hold uphold those things as well as hold people accountable if they don't do it. So I think good, good lab heads will probably have a very clear lab code of conduct. Mm. Um, they will probably set very um, clear uh, lines of communication for how they want to communicate things. Things will be done with honesty and transparency. They will, if they say they're going to be somewhere, they will be there. They will provide time for you, both um, peer for peer-led discussions, but also just one-on-one -on -one with them. Um, they will, so there's lots of perhaps what we would call management processes but actually they themselves will uphold it and, and make sure that they are part of those processes too to show that this is important. If I'm spending my time doing this, that is because it's important and therefore the rest of you must follow me, if that makes sense. It does make sense. In, so in your experience, and you just mentioned honesty, um, and back in your, in your talk you also talked around trust. In your opinion or from your experiences, do you think there's a lack of uh, radical candour in HE? Um, it's a good question. <laughs> I think, I don't know if it's a lack of, um... Unwillingness to? Yeah, I think, I do think there is a little bit of, I think at the early career researcher stage there's um, a lot of concern about their job security mm -hmm. and how if they were to speak up then they would be, um, you know, potentially harming their future career prospects. I think then what you get is for the people who did make it, there's a little bit of survival bias. So I did this this way, so the rest of you can do it this way, and just, you know, the way to get ahead is to put your head down and just get on with it. Um, so, you know, I suppose for in answer to your question, the answer is yes. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that being said, that isn't, you know, that isn't everyone. No. Um, no. And I think there are a lot of people trying to make changes and perhaps those changes are taking an effect but just in small numbers at the moment we haven't been able to change the system around us yeah. and I think funders predominantly are the ones that can really make mm. that kind of change. Yeah. And do you think some of um, your reflections are on your discipline as well? So my background is the academic study of education so um, my teams were always um, made up of um, people maybe with a social policy background. I also had developmental psychologists, sociologists, 
Um, and, and what you were talking about earlier in, in your talk was about this collaborative style of leadership. As PIs, we always had to employ that style of leadership because I didn't know the stuff that my team knew. So I, some of what you're saying is quite foreign to me because I've just not seen that modelled in my discipline. Do, yeah. you, do you think some of what you're saying is, is quite unique to the sciences, maybe? Or is that unfair? Uh, I know, I actually I do agree because I was having this discussion um, with some senior members of staff at Imperial um, and apparently in physics and engineering, they actually do talk about very early or introduce undergraduates really early on to teamwork and leadership and the skills that you need to be an effective team. Yeah, and I guess a multidisciplinary approach to the subject because yeah. we have to because of the subjects that we're, we're working exactly. with. Exactly. Whereas I come from a biosciences and for whatever reason, there seems to be a lot of competition behind right. closed doors. And they seem to work in very small teams. This isn't everyone, again, this is a very generalisation. But working in small teams, wanting to be the first to get their new finding out Mm -hmm. um, and and have a very sort of inward-orientated approach to how they work. I do think because our problems are as complex as they are and we don't have as many resources as we would like, there is probably a move to work more collaboratively. um, But we're not really seeing the full effect of that but again that's because it's not something that's rewarded and to do collaborative working can take a lot of effort um, and it takes quite a lot longer Um, you know you have to do a lot of work to get a project in place if it's a collaborative one working you know across countries and institutions and different labs that all have different um, requirements why do that when you could just do it in your lab of five and get your bit out which is enough to get the next career yeah move get your three-star paper yeah Yeah, exactly so you can see how the incentives are really shaping our behavior um and but i do completely agree that perhaps the what my experiences aren't the same as other people in institutions but in other areas of an institution but that's why we really need to talk about this so we can identify best practices Mm. and learn from each other Mm. i'm just going to change track slightly and go, well, I say change track, I'm actually going to go completely off piece. Okay. So, um, <laughs> in your talk, you mentioned around um, an academic leadership model. Is that what you created? Just oh, I've created an academic leadership code. Code, yes, yes. thank you. So, um, in the academy, we've created something recently, and it's due to a lack of, I don't know, um, guidance or some sort of model, but we created a leadership framework and in that framework there's four pillars. Ambassadorial, uh, credible, impactful, inclusive. So we've got those four pillars that sort and then under that there's lots of things that underpin what those behaviours should be. So we're just rolling that out now and we've just we've embedded that into our leadership programme. So we're just really really at the very beginning of that. Um, And I suppose my question around that is uh, well one why is that missing in HE? Because you know we're only just getting around to doing it. So why is that missing? Um, and two, does does those sort of themes tie in with your code? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I feel a bit vindicated to hear that you've just done the same <laughs> as well, because clearly there is a gap, yeah. and that guidance isn't being provided. So there is sort of no um, handrail, if you like, for people to know exactly what to do. Um, not exactly what to do because it's not a you must behave this exactly, way no. it's you know these are the things that are important to us so yeah. make sure you think about them so i guess within higher education i suppose the easiest answer as to why it isn't here is because it hasn't been valued 
right. until now. And there are, I think we were operating in a very traditional way, this idea that you have a single PI that can lead a lab to great things, but actually now we are under a lot more stress and pressures. There's a lot fewer resources to go around more, more people with um, much more complex problems. So the ability to, to work well and work effectively means that you need much better sort of transferable leadership type skills mm. so that you can cut across um, many different types of groups, different cultures, um, and really get the best out of the people that you're working with. So from reading about you, there's one phrase that really seems to make you shudder, um, and that, that is, uh, what this needs is good leadership. Um, so why is this phrase such a problem for you? Because when I first returned to academia and started going to a few science meetings, this phrase kind of got banded about <laughs> a lot. And I was perhaps feeling quite negative that firstly, there are very few good leaders in academia. So I was, I was always surprised that they kept saying what this needs is good leadership because we're not preparing anyone to be a good leader, for starters. There are very few, there are good people, but whether they're good leaders is another thing. But also that it, it doesn't mean anything unless you define it. Leadership means something very different to many different types mm -hmm. of people. And I think it's really important that you define what that is. And yes, we know something needs good leadership, but we should say what that looks like um, and in the context of a specific problem. Yeah. And so just saying a phrase, it's just empty rhetoric to me. And that's frustrating um, because you would never hear that in the army. There's loads, there's loads of leaders, but no one would say what this needs is good leadership. It's this is the problem, this is how we need to solve it, this is what we're going to do kind of thing. And you, you just don't get that. Yeah. And then you also see that good leadership within yeah. the problem solving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So when you say there aren't many good leaders in academia, what, what are we looking for? What, what makes you a good leader in your eyes? Yeah, I think it's a bit, I mean, I think that's really unfair to say there aren't many good leaders in academia. I should correct that. I just think that um, there, are, there, are, there are good leaders and good people but there are not many people that spend time really thinking about what leadership is and what is most effective. And this is something that I would like to do in the future, is start to really understand what our leadership training needs are um, so that we can best equip people for the challenges. Because at the moment, the good leaders that we do have in academia, they've learnt by trial and error. And they're probably very natural leaders as well, but not everyone is, but it doesn't mean that they can't be effective. Um, and so I'm just... Um, quite interested in exploring and finding an evidence base for what exactly we need and how we can develop it further. Wonderful and it seems that the literature is pointing that that there is a bit of interest around this now. Um, I was doing a bit of research around this and there are more and more research outputs in terms of what are we looking for in higher education to do with leadership. Are you yeah. seeing there is a bit of a wave in terms of the change? Yeah, most definitely. I think the biggest one was welcome the Wellcome Trust um, Research Culture Survey. And of course, they're continuing the conversation from that survey with the hashtag Reimagine Research. Um, their findings showed us that so many academics and researchers are not happy in their current situation. There's you know, really high percentages of um, 
of unhealthy competition, of bullying and harassment and feeling unable to do anything about the situation that we find ourselves in. There's over 50% of people saying that they needed to seek professional assistance for depression or anxiety. Um, and there's lots more within their, um, their survey. It was really comprehensive. It looked at researchers, mm. impact on research output and impact on society. And I think now we've got a major funder in the UK saying with, that has the empirical evidence to say, you know, we do need to start a change, yeah. a cultural shift. Um, and so where the money is is always where the change will Yeah, come. I mean, they were, they were saying uh, 48% of researchers who manage people have received training. That's a really low statistic. It's very low. So, so you think that there will be a response to that? I hope so. I mean, certainly I'm here to advocate for that. Um, it, to me, it's really alien, and I'm pretty certain it'll be really alien from, for people from other sectors that you were not trained to do your job, particularly when you have such huge responsibilities. You know, principal investigators can have millions of pounds worth of funding, um, you know, a lot of that governmental or charity-based, so you have a huge responsibility to make sure that that's spent appropriately anyway. But then you'll have large numbers of people within your teams, you know, very talented people, but if you want to harness that, you need to know how to do so and do so effectively and without causing harm. Um, I think it only makes sense that we would have some form of training, if anything, just to say this is our baseline standard and we expect this of you as a minimum. And, um, and it would help people to know that institutions, when things go wrong, a lot of people feel that they don't have any say or power to do anything to make any change. You know, there's, I think it's something like a third of people that witnessed bullying and harassment felt powerless to do anything about mm. it. But actually, if we equipped everyone with these skills, they would know that they have some agency and that institutions would take those sorts of complaints seriously and there would be some form of accountability. Mm. I think this runs all the way through and we can talk about it you know, in a, in a micro sense of just a PI in their lab to, to a much wider institutional and, and beyond. I thought one thing you said really stood out to me earlier was as a PI you're, you're given years and years of training in terms of their technical ability but actually on a daily basis it's their leadership skills that are having to kick in yeah. on a much more regular occasion than actually the technical skills that yeah. they'll need to do their research and I think you were also reflecting on how with the army right from the very like br as a brand new um member of the army you're you're engaged in leadership training is that what you're advocating for academia in terms of right from the very very beginning we should be um, thinking about leadership the leadership track the training the development rather than you become a PI and actually oh should we pop you on a course now yes. or something like that absolutely I think there's a number of reasons for wanting to do that firstly those those are skills that you need throughout your life regardless of what you go on to do um, and they are just, they're just people skills in a professional setting. Um, and second to that, it should, leadership shouldn't be this thing that we talk about that stands alone from everything else. Mm -hmm. It is, by definition, situational. And so we must have it woven into the fabric of everything that we do. And so you can only do that once you have delivered sort of the basic sort of fundamental principles and you have people that have an understanding and then they can take that with them throughout their careers. There is no one size fits all approach. I don't um, prescribe to 
um, you know, one specific leadership model and this is the way we should do something. It's more about understanding what's important to people and how you treat people well. And if we can instill that from the get-go, we will have a very positive research culture. Um, but then I do have issue with only sort of PIs who are at that stage of their life quite senior then receiving leadership training because there are lots of informal leadership positions and it makes leadership this thing you only do if you are in a formal position yeah or at a certain grade yeah and then access certain leadership training but it's not the case at all there are lots of informal leadership positions and the way in which we're now working which is more about teams of teams um, you may have a specific skill set and get seconded to somebody else you actually need to have a much more um, many more skills I suppose that you need to, to use and leadership is key as well uh, and I'd like to move away from this idea that once you're in a senior position that is formally recognised as a leadership role then you get the training because everyone has influence over others so it should be something that we all do all the time Brilliant. Thank you, Nadia. It's been lovely talking to you. Um, Before we get on to our final question, I'm really interested to know, because you've already had such an amazing career already, (laughs) um, what what next for you once you've got your PhD? um, Where's that taking you? I've got sort of just over a year left on my PhD, so I really need to start looking at the next steps. I think I would like to stay in academia a little bit longer, but I am open to looking at opportunities within industry. Um, I suppose the cop-out answer is I just don't know Great. yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm very open to suggestions um, and job offers. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, I'm not put off by the culture that, that exists widely, and I think I do feel quite compelled to just share my story to help us all head in a more positive direction. I'm really fortunate though that I I am in a lab that is extremely positive and I'm very well supported. Um, And I do feel for other people that won't have been that lucky because I've got there just purely by luck. Um, But there are lots of good people out there so I don't plan to give up just yet. Um, I just hope I get some job security (laughs) soon. (laughs) Maybe you could do some leadership development. Oh, absolutely. Very keen to continue this but I don't want to put my science my science and research aside I want to be able to do both concurrently I'm always happy to do extra projects about leadership science stuff first okay science first (laughs) leadership second yeah got it okay so um, we'd like to finish uh, the podcast with uh, three or four take-home tips that the listeners could reflect on in terms of their own personal practice Um, have you got three or four tips or thoughts to reflect on in relation to your experiences uh, that you'd like to share yeah I I love that you do this this is really I think it's really useful I'm really as we talk about all the problems that exist I think it's really helpful to kind of uh, think about how we can make changes ourselves so I think one of the things um, that is really important is to have some self-awareness and actually spend some time really trying, it sounds awful, but really try to understand yourself, what your strengths and weaknesses are and how you like to work and try and have some of those discussions with the people within your team so that you can understand a little bit more about them and how they like to work. Um, and just think about how your behaviour changes when you become stressed Um, and how you could perhaps manage some of those behaviours better so you don't have a negative impact on other people. 
or if you do, that's okay, but that they recognise that that's because you're stressed. Mm. Um, and I think those are really useful conversations to have and share as much as you can with people within your team because that also builds trust. Um, another little bit of advice would be to just take responsibility. Um, Prioritise time for yourself and your development um, and, and time for reflection. You know, we're all challenged quite regularly, so we all have to demonstrate leadership regularly. Um, so just take a little bit of time out and ask, you know, was that the best way to respond to the situation? Could I have done it differently? Ask peers if they would have done it differently. Just start to have conversations because if you're thinking about it and talking about it, it will help you mm. to, to be more aware. Um, and then, and with take responsibility as well, I think there is a role for a bit of advocacy and to help others and not just be a bystander. If you see that there are problems and issues or pe people are experiencing um, really horrible things, then try to help in a way that you can. Of course, not everyone has the same level of agency, but we all do have agency. So have some integrity and a bit of moral courage to, to do the right, the right thing. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank right. you so much. Brilliant. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Well, it was great to catch up with Nadia there when she came to see us in Liverpool. Um, just reflecting on one of the things she said then and how easy it is to slip into a leadership role without any training when you are so good at a specific subject or, or a role as it's so often the next logical step in your career progression. Um, and we see this a lot, um, particularly within, within the technical community at the University of Liverpool. And it's something that we, uh, we as in the academy are keen to support in ensuring colleagues are appropriately developed for their roles and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that we see with academics as well as as time goes on and um, academics develop, they often move into positions of leadership as well. And yeah. um, it's really important that we get that um, development opportunities in place for them. Um, I really enjoyed the talk as well. I really um, found uh, Nadia's story interesting. And I think one of the things that I'm going to reflect on is how she talked about in the army, leadership being an ongoing expectation that regardless of role, um, there is that expectation there right from the very first day in terms of how you're going to develop as a leader. And I think that's something that we can really learn from um, in higher education. So there's lots there for us to think about. And a big thank you to Nadia for coming and chatting to us. Um, when she was up in Liverpool. If you'd like to take your thinking further, we've added some um, resources to the website, specifically in relation to the themes that Nadia talks about. And you can find those on the reading list, which you can access at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. Also, we love to hear from you, so please do let us know what you thought about this episode. You can tweet us at liveuniacademy or you can tweet us directly at elearnermat or at alexandra underscore owen. And we're really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast providers app. And I know I say this every time and it might be a little bit boring for those who have, who have listened to all of our episodes, um, but it really does help if you can either rate or review the app as it uh, helps us get up in the, in the rankings and more people will find us as a result. 
Also, and again, I've said this before, but I know a lot of you have listened and not yet subscribed. So hit the follow button or the subscribe button now and keep up to date with our latest episodes. Bye for now. Bye.